very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview, and all of our interviews going all the way back to 2008, hundreds of hours of truth, all you need to do is go to our website and click on subscribe you'll get your login immediately. And the same if you want to upgrade your life. Go to sanitasradio.com and listen. You won't regret it. And if you want to get in touch with me, you have a guest suggestion, want to be a guest on this radio program, or simply have some feedback, I always love to hear from you. Click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And tonight, we continue the legacy of Zachariah Sitchin. Before we begin, let's listen to some of his last words. Zachariah, we are captives of our current technology. What if you had been alive 100 or more years ago and were to attempt to translate the tablets and saw that it's known what it's known today as an astronaut saluting a rocket. 100 years ago, there weren't any astronauts or rockets. What would you have said? It's, I would have said, I, I myself would have said, it's a very large, they're saluting a very large pencil. It, it, have your research changed with the advent of technology since you started? In other words, can you say now, well, really what I meant to say back in 1972 was, for example, the internet or something new. Has anything of that changed? Frankly, when I started to write, it was, uh, I would use the uh, memory chips um, that, that the best I could do. Now, uh, we, we probably we, we would say, uh, what? Uh, microchip. Microchips. Uh, because they get smaller and smaller and, 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 and they can uh, store uh, more and more information. We're so, in general, we're so arrogant in the modern civilization to think that we know it all. We're trying to build a better mousetrap, so, so to speak. And when we look back at, again, going to Balpec and see the structures and, and the way they were moved and the weight, something happened where that knowledge was there. Obviously, they were more advanced than we are today. What happened to that knowledge? Who took it? Who who disappeared that knowledge? Well, they left, uh, whether uh, uh, 
happy or disgusted. <laughs> uh, you, you can have your choice of this text or that text. Uh, some were happy with mankind and some were very uh, disgusted with the way we turned out. Uh, and, um, and they promised to come back and that's where all the prophecies about uh, uh, the end of days and Armageddon come, come into play. So uh, uh, we'll see. They left and they took the instruction manuals with them, didn't they? In the end, we'll find out that, that the, the real uh, storage uh, place is DNA. Well, speaking of electronics devi- devices, if, God forbid, there's a nuclear exchange in today's world, we, we keep our knowledge and our data in paper, books, in computers, in, in silicone chips, etc. But back then, there may have been nuclear uh, weapons detonated during that time, but because they were left on, on clay tablets, we're lucky to have that knowledge today. Do you think that that may repeat itself? Oh, that, that, that is a point that I used to make at, at the beginning of, of my talking about my books. Uh, when, when I said that uh, uh, the Sumerians wrote on, on clay tablets, uh, people would, uh, the, the first reaction would be, oh, they were that primitive. So I would bring with me. Right. I would bring with me to the lecture a clay tablet, you know, small enough to hold to hold it in my hand, and uh, hold it up in one hand, and in the other hand I would hold up one of my books, and I say uh, to the people, which one of these do you think will last another six thousand years? Is it true that in that area of the world, and I hear this again and again, there are areas completely infertile? And you could even see glass, glass, sand on the floor. Uh, can we estimate that a nuclear device was exploded there at one point? Uh, where uh, there's no doubt a nuclear explosion had taken place. In your research, have you found why or what happened? Why was it caused? Yeah, yeah, it was a quarrel among themselves. This is something that you don't hear that much, but many people don't know that NASA astronomers have found this 10th planet in our solar, 12th planet in our solar system, and are so sure about it that the only thing left is to name it. Is this Nibiru, and why isn't this information more public? Ask the government. I suppose the question is, what would be the consequences if it's admitted? And those were some of the last words of Zacharias Sitchin, who passed away in October of 2010. You can listen to our interview if you go to Season 2 of our website. But tonight, we're privileged to have someone who has studied the work of Sitchin for over 20 years. Her name is M.J. Evans, Ph.D., a professor emeritus at Sun University of New York Empire State College, where she taught environmental geography for 30 years, a friend and colleague of Zacharias Sitchin for nearly 20 years. She accompanied Sitchin on several tours to ancient sites in the Mediterranean region and has appeared on the TV show Ancient Aliens to discuss Sitchin's work. She spends most of each year in Turkey, where she studies ancient sites and landscapes. Her new book is titled Zacharias Sitchin, on the extraterrestrial origins of humanity. 
and she joins us today. Hello, MJ, and welcome to Veritas. And I know that I'm supposed to call you Chris, correct? Yes, that's right. I'm so glad to be here with you today. My pleasure. And as I told you offline, we had the privilege of interviewing Zechariah before he passed away. But as I was telling you offline, I have lots, lots of notes that I wrote for that day. And after reviewing your book in the past few days, I think you'll be able to answer a lot of those questions. But for those who may not know who you are, how did you bump into Zechariah decades ago? And how are you carrying the torch now? Well, um, unbeknownst to me, I, I got this flyer in the mail back in 1995, and I did not recognize where it came from or, or who could have sent it, but it invited me to a conference uh, called When Cosmic Cultures Meet. So um, recognizing some of the names of the notables on the program, I decided I was living then in, in the Syracuse area, so I got my car and drove to Washington, D.C., and found myself at a conference, a very well-attended conference, um, and started to listen carefully and curiously to the speakers based on the title of the conference itself. Well, when Zachariah's term came, and he was on the main program, and then at near the end of the program, or at the end of the two days, he was on a separate panel that was focused on futures. So... What I heard him telling people was that there was another planet that came into our solar system on a periodicity of 3,600 years, give or take a couple hundred either way, and that that planet was inhabited and that the people uh, essentially needed gold in order to preserve the atmosphere of their planet. And they must have found by cooperating or using their own technology uh, because they were they were and are thousands of years ahead of us in terms of technologic development. So they must have maybe done the same kind of thing that we have done on Mars, which is try to find out what the mineral capability of the, of the surface is. We've used this kind of technology on asteroids, etc. So they must have had that because they knew that if they were to get a team of, of astronauts uh, into the Persian Gulf, that there would be gold on the floor of the Persian Gulf. So um, I listened to Zechariah talk about this ancient civilization and that they have been coming to this planet for 445,000 years. And, and then I perked right up. Why? The questions I asked myself was, why have I never heard about this before? We have ancient historians, what was going on here? So I became very interested in what he was talking about. Now, on my way into the conference room itself, I passed a bookseller, and she had stacked up several books uh, on an L-shaped table. On one side was very academic, hardcover type things, and on the other side were these paperbacks with kind of racy, colorful uh, covers, and I thought, oh, those are just sex novels. I don't read that kind of stuff. Well, come to find out, those were the initial six books that Zachariah Sitchin had published. So I bought them and continued to pay attention to whenever he published. 
And with that first batch of books, I had been going to a library in northern Wales in England, or Great Britain, I guess you'd call it. And I had been reading up on an ancient myth that was focused on the country of Ireland. And in that myth, they talked about a group of explorers who had come from the north in ships, lay off the the west coast of Ireland, eventually landed and found two indigenous groups of people. And they were viewed by those indigenous people as invaders. Well, eventually, oh, and by the way, when they came ashore, they burned their, their uh, they burned their ships so that none of their small group could use the ships to get away. Huh. So they intended to stay. Well, just to cut to the chase, I asked Zachariah if the people he was talking about, who are now because of the way we've treated ancient history and, and ancient clay tablets, if the people that I had been studying that it had come to Ireland were the Anunnaki. And he looked at me very sternly and very seriously, and he said to me what he has said to hundreds of other people. Read my books. books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was like a byword with him. He was probably right, because when you read his book, you come up with enormous amounts of information that are the result of his lifetime of study of the ancient writings of the what started out in cuneiform and became a language recognized as the first language on earth. And he spent the rest of his life even after his first book came out in 1976, going to museums, studying. In somewhere in the middle to late 80s, he decided to bring people with him who were interested in the same subjects. He always called those those folks his fans. I was one of his fans early in my exposure to his work, but I was an academic. So he was a little interested in me as well as I being interested in him, because most academics that he had encountered were very skeptical of the validity of his work, and he was quite sensitive about that. So anyway, um, I spent my time in England reading his sources. I found a library that had been donated to the church, donated to the Church of England, and one shelf was loaded with these books that wrote about ancient Sumer um, it, and and early ancient history. Of course, there was no space age when many of those books were published. Several of them carried dates of the 1850s, others 1890s, 1906, 1904. There was no space age when the early translations of the recent, what was then, recently found tablets had come into the public view. Well, Zechariah, just to shorten the trajectory a little here, Zechariah taught himself to read those tablets. He had gone to school at the London School of Economics, had access to the British Museum's collection of the, of the pieces, the, the, the shards, you might say, of those ancient tablets. When the expeditions 
who were mounted by famous museums and universities like the University of Chicago, University of Pennsylvania, when they found these, these uh, well, collections, you could call them, uh, for example, they broke into the, the tomb of Ajabanapal, which was a city with a king by that name, and in the lower levels of that structure, they found thousands and thousands of cataloged clay tablets. Well, the clay tablets had been dictated to a group of people who were created, and I'll get back to this idea of why we needed or why they needed a group of people who were intelligent. So I'll skip to that for right right this minute. Anyway... Zachariah taught himself to read these tablets because in the translations there were gaps. Sometimes they used ellipses, three dots in a row, um, or they came up with some idea that they thought fit the context that they could read. Well, Zachariah recognized that there was a similarity in the way in which those, those untranslatable pieces were being translated. Now, he's working in the 20th century, the latter half of the 20th century, and he began to realize when he could read them himself and translate even the original clay tablets himself, when he did that, he noticed there was a space age flavor to that. So he used his modern space age lens and began to fit together a story then a story, now we know it as fact, of another planet that came to this solar system that repeated within a, a long time, a 3,600-year interval. Nibiru. For the, Nibiru. And for the rest of the time, it was out on a, on a destiny, which is what he called the uh, travel of a particular planet. It was out in deep space. Now, I asked him numerous times, where was the other foci? Any ellipse has two foci. And I asked him, where was it? What star system could it have been? And he never wanted, I think he knew, he never wanted to venture uh, a possible source of error. So he never answered my question. He just said, all we know is that the orbit that they, their planet rotates on is elliptical, and it returns to our solar system and inserts between Jupiter and Mars. Why the gold then? And I'm going to interject a little bit here, because if I'm looking at the elliptical orbit, obviously the planet will be warmer as it approaches to our sun. Yes, But as it, as it starts leaving, if you will, and let's say it's 50% on that elliptical orbit, then it will be colder. Was that right. gold needed Probably. so that when they were the planet was approaching our sol the, the center of our solar system that it needed to protect itself and reduce its temperature, in your opinion? Well, we now know, based on the way our space vehicles and our space stations are built, that all the windows are coated with a very fine layer of pulverized gold. We know that the, one of the properties of gold is that it stops ultraviolet radiation. Now, on the other hand, that planet, according to the information that was given to the, 
the peoples we know as Sumerians and then written down on clay tablets so that we now know what they said, what those ancient astronauts said. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.